The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Take off those Mickey Mouse ears and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 106 with guests Rocky Lakta and Bill Vaughn, recorded live Tuesday, March 22nd, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet and ASPNet classes remotely. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the UI essential for rapid ASPNet development. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, a leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who's suing Walt Disney because his Mickey Mouse underwear is chafing, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome to .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. This is Carl Franklin, live in Orlando, Florida, with Jeff Maciolik here, and Richard Campbell, and my guests, Rocky Laka and Bill Vaughn, which we'll get to in a second. We are recording this live Live in front of a live audience here at Dev Connections. A, a throng of people out there. Seven. A thong of people. No, not a thong. A couple of uh, superstars in the audience over to my left here Joe Stagner and uh, uh, Russ Fastino. Stand up and take a bow. Probably know Russ from uh, the local Russ's Tool Shed stuff, and uh, just for the set the record straight, he was ours first, and then he came to you. <laughs> He's got his start up in the Boston area and uh, developed a. He, he taught Microsoft how to do community up in the Boston area, and it spread throughout the uh, entire United States. Good to have you here, Russ. Thank you very much. All right. Well, I got some mail, Richard. Tell me all about it, man. Well, you know, I guess I should talk to you first, huh? That would be nice. Thanks. How you doing? Well, I'm weirded out. Normally when I'm doing this, I'm at home, and I'm really not at home. Yeah, you're not. I'm at the swamp that Disney built. <laughs> We're not at Dev Connections anymore, man. Yeah. Toto. Well, I got, some, I got some mail here. We might as well just get started, because I want to spend most of this uh, show talking to the guests. This uh, we got this week from Steve Arnott, who says, Hi, Carl. Just wanted to say hi and thanks for the .NET Rock shows. They're both they're both informative and funny. Oh, you must be talking about you, Jeff. The oh, funny part yeah. there. <laughs> the funny show, hair. <laughs> the show with the write-in letter about how Bill Gates made half his billions from nothing. Uh, that was the zero part of ones and zeros. Right. Was a buy it was a riot. On a serious note, I think it's pretty funny that in 2005, 
I now find myself going back eight years in time trying to unlearn all the stupid techniques I taught myself to write workable database apps in ASP. Every time I figure out how to do something real in ASP.NET, I say to myself, oh yeah, that's the way we did it in Visual Fox Pro back in 97. <laughs> <laughs> Funny stuff indeed. Anyway, keep up the good work. .NET rocks, but much of it seems like deja vu all over again. Just brought to the, to the web. Regards, Steve Arnott. Uh, Steve, thank you very much for your letter. and uh, For that, we're going to send you a copy of Visual Fox Pro for .NET. <laughs> well, uh, what can I say about these two guys, Rocky Laka and Bill Vaughn? I mean, you know, they don't usually team up. They're usually uh, independent, uh, independent guys, but we're going to be talking to them both at the same time. So we're going to be talking about uh, probably business objects that use Jet, right, Bill? That's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do have an announcement to make. There's a news bulletin. We just published the last ABM uh, test failed. The next the, the anti-ballistic missile system test failed. It was discovered they were using a Jet database. And oh, are you serious? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> And they're upgrading to SQL Express with 10 times performance. <laughs> well, I don't you see, I never know with Bill because he has such an obvious sense of humor that uh, it's sometimes hard to tell. And he was a, a vet, too, so that was just the kind of joke that you would make, man. Rocky, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Although I'm switching from objects. Uh, objects are dead and, and services. It's it's all services now. Objects no, are dead. Yeah, don't you know that? Newsflash: Rocky Latka says objects oh. are dead. <laughs> yeah, Deborah Carrot is changing the name of her book. It was Debbie Does Objects. It's now going to be Debbie Does Services. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Rocky. I mean, so now that objects are dead, I want to ask you. What the hell were you thinking, man? Yeah, we were all delusional, really. You know, it, it was it was the loose, wild days of the '90s, and so, and and you know, everybody was doing things that they regretted later in life, and, oh. and and you know, it's 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 okay. I've come to terms. So, do you have a bad object hangover now, or? Yeah, yeah, I get flashbacks sometimes, and I twitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, the advice I gave the lady in the front row, where I told her she was delusional, you should not do objects; you should do services. Rocky says, so, "Okay." <laughs> I do services, web services, SQL services, uh, Car wash Windows services. services. Yeah. So uh, you, both you guys have been... Rocky, you just got here, didn't you, for, to the I, conference? I, I did. I took the airplane service down here. And, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> if you can call it that. <laughs> so yeah, there's no service on airplanes anymore. Your so talks are coming up then. Yes. I, you, I've got three talks tomorrow. What are you going to be talking about? Uh, well, I was going to talk about objects, and then I was going to talk some What's more about point, objects. What's the point, man? And, and then I was going to talk some more about objects, but, you know, nobody cares. So, <laughs> so are you just going to go home at this point? Uh, yeah, yeah, because okay. you know, all my slides, you know, you have to send them in ahead of time, so I can't change now. Sure, right. you can. Search and replace object to services, the it's, same shit. You need PowerPoint refactoring support, <laughs> man, is what you need. Yeah, does anybody sell a PowerPoint refactoring tool by chance? Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Got to add in someplace there. And, Bill, your speed, you, you, did you, you were here early? doing some stuff? And I did a workshop uh, trying to scare the crap out of uh, DBAs going to CLR, <laughs> and I really did very well. I, 
I, I don't know of DBA that isn't frightened of the CLR. Well, they're really frightened of the CLR developers, and I told them how easy it is to enable it. So and they said, oh, my God. What was the <laughs> typical look on, on the participant's Deer face? Deer in the headlights kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, really? Had, Where did you lose them? Did you lose them at uh, this code? or was trying to explain what a data type was. Yeah. But they have data types in SQL. What's well, the... Sort of, but it's the kind of the, not the same thing. We started, And then we started getting into... Um, I, I, I serialize bindable, I binary serialize, and, and you know, serialization for string type. I serial bindable. Yeah. I binary serializable, actually. Sabindable serializable. Get the sound guy back in the booth. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so they were confused by serialization. What, what were you thinking um, showing to that to them? Or? Well, I tried to get up to that point, and that's, there, everybody was completely lost by that point. And it, uh, yeah. we were also working with a VPC, an operating system running within the operating system, trying to run the test code. And uh, it locked up several times, too, which didn't help either. So it's, But the February CTP is a lot more stable than we've ever been, so we're, we're well along. I expect the product should ship uh, while Bush is still president. Um, <laughs> <laughs> based on what I'm seeing so far. Yeah. So moving line right along to Rocky. So obviously services are your new thing. What's uh, did, I, did I say that? I kind of feel like service or an architecture was something that somebody a Mickey that somebody slipped in our drink. Isn't your new that we didn't realize? His whole his whole practice is switching over to VB6 support since Microsoft has dropped it. So uh, it's uh, oh yeah no no wait a minute now yeah, yeah <laughs> it, it's true it's true we're, we're retraining all of our C sharp guys. To, to uh, you know, and, and it's hard because we have to put them in a rehab program. It's a s- semicolon withdrawal. It, it, it's, you know, and most of the documentation really doesn't isn't illustrated, which makes it very difficult. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to Five Nerds Try to Have a Talk Show. <laughs> All right, so uh, you guys want to ask the questions, and I will. Uh, that'd be good. So, so Rocky, seriously, now, what are you what are you doing these days? Seriously, I'm still very much uh, embedded in the object world. Yeah. Perhaps more than than before, because I think that, um, as you just noted, you know, services are are in the midst of of all hype and no substance. Yeah. And by the time that there is substance, I think that that, um, a lot of people have turned their back on it just because it's just all nuts right now. Everybody's using um, ASMX or or endpoints, whatever we want to call them, but basically we're doing component-based programming. We're doing the same thing with XML that we did with with DCOM, and who cares? I mean, is that exciting? Yeah, you know, it's like your your uh, the mail that you read. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the guy's saying, "Hey, we we did all this once before, and now we're just doing it with HTML." Whoop de doo! Right, and it's the same thing. We've been doing RPC with various protocols for how long? Yeah, and, and to turn around and say, "Oh, it's so much better with angle brackets," is <laughs> is absurd, <laughs> and, and actually misses the point. And and you know, so then you start thinking about services. What, what if they're not components? Then they've got to be something else. And, and I think the potential is there for them to be something really, really cool. Um, I don't know that we're ready for it, so I'm, I'm not convinced that it's going to happen. In other words, we don't have enough standard practice or, or standardization. Or well, I'm not sure. What would make them interesting is if it if the endpoints are actually accepting and, and uh, transmitting messages. So not parameters, but 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 messages, as in a messaging protocol, and and of course we've been there before too with MSMQ and with MQ series, and this is just a a broader way of doing messaging, but 
as soon as you start doing messaging, then you get into some really interesting things because messages are almost by their nature asynchronous. Yeah, that yeah. was, I was thinking suddenly right. you're back to a one-way channel. Well, it's going to be grief see, for is, a lot of people. Yeah, but this is, well, on one hand, this is where it gets exciting because then you are doing asynchronous distributed and thus parallel computing. So distributed parallel computing is really cool so the in, in a super geeky way. So the service broker plays, the SQL Server service broker. Certainly, the SQL yeah. Server service Very broker. Very interesting new Say that five yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. they are. They're <laughs> going to change the name twice before they ship, too. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. But, 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 but. Okay. You know, to, to the point that, that yes, I, I don't think most of us in the industry are ready to go there because um, parallel processing in and of itself, multi-threading, only on different machines. Most people yeah. can't get multi-threading right because it's so hard. And now we're going to do it on multiple machines. Do you think right? as the brain was evolving and the neurotransmitters were trying to figure out how to cross synaptic gaps that they actually went to conferences to learn how to do it? Or, you know, they formed committees and standard bodies first? No, no I, that's a possibility. But I'm convinced that uh, you, you just what see the, the studies in scientific America. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm impressed. Sorry. said that's like the first know, time I was sitting beside you doing a show, and you just scare the crap out of me. Like, what was that? So I think this is the first time I've actually Carl has been the one talking about neurochemistry instead of me, and it's, yeah. it's really throwing me for a loop here. I don't, right. I don't know. Sorry, I just saw a documentary on Peter Max. I'm a little freaked out right now, so never mind. Mm. Never mind that question. <laughs> Anyway. What? 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 I'm still traumatized. I'm just going to get past it. I'm going to go back to queuing, okay? Because I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why the majority of software is not built with queuing. It's, it's not a simple technology to work with. People aren't familiar with the idea of not knowing what order they're sending stuff out in. They've got to have a totally different channel to get it back, and it's going to come back in a different order as well. Well, so here's, here's my challenge, basically, to the, to the service world. You know, the, the, the strong proponents of it are saying that this is a huge shift, right? It's, it's a major change in the industry, yeah. akin, perhaps, to the change from procedural to object orientation. Yeah. If that's true, where is the service-oriented language? Because when we shifted from procedures to objects, we had Simula, we had Smalltalk, we had Lisp, we had C++. We had we, a whole host of languages as people experimented with these ideas to make them actually work, right? Show me a single language with any innovation or, or anything going on around services. It's specifically to address the issues you're talking about. If our language and our compilers helped us, perhaps it would be possible. But to sit with with uh, you know things like C sharp and Visual Basic that were not designed, it, they're they're not service oriented languages, whatever that is. But the I mean the issue here really is that they're overblowing the significance of the new model. They're trying to compare it to the uh, the creation of object oriented development, and it's not comparable. It's still relevant. I mean it's an important thing they're they're coming up with here, but it's I think it's on a higher order. You're very enterprise oriented rather than language-oriented when you're trying to come up with designs like this. The same is true of queuing. Queuing technology is an enterprise issue. It's about how do I separate layers of applications that are so they're more tolerant to the variations that happen when, I, when things actually run. I can deal with burst loads, and I can deal with distance loads and multiple sources. See, but you put it that way, and it takes all the fun out of it. Where's the <laughs> hype? Where's the sensationalism, man? Is... Well, do you, do you actually think there are things that could be um, added to the language to make it more... Uh, service oriented that isn't it that, that has missed the mark so far i you know i'm not a language designer so i have a hard time sitting here I, no i don't think so i, I think that we yeah. need a new language 
Well, if he's right. if what he's talking about in terms of needing a new language is the same, I mean, you're talking about comparing, you know, ANSI C to C plus plus, and you know, okay, so they've got semicolons and parentheses and and stuff like that, but you're not. It's it's really not the same language when you start making that kind of a fundamental change to, or when you want to make a fundamental change, do you really want to be using the same language and try to shoehorn that kind of stuff onto it? But not saying you, that C is shoehorning. I wouldn't ever, you know, insult C But do you need a new language in order to do the in in order to make the architecture right? Isn't language all about things that do stuff? You know, whether the fact that we're talking across services or calling components, does it matter? Well, I, I don't know. You know, languages are a way of expressing thought, way of, of transforming something in an, that's abstract in our brain into something more concrete. And so you can get in discussions. In fact, I had a, got into a discussion once about why my son is learning Spanish instead of French with a Frenchman. Uh -huh. it, it, yeah, you can laugh because yeah, it, it was no ugly. way to win that argument. And, and <laughs> it, it, apparently, see, unless you learn French, you'll never be a diplomat. You'll never be an adequate lover. I mean, it, yeah, it's and, <laughs> <laughs> that was true in the 1800s. You know, <laughs> well, this is this is this was true about a year ago. Apparently, apparently. <laughs> so, I, I'm just suggesting that that a lot of interesting and novel ideas were tried out in a variety of languages. At the birth of object orientation. Yeah. And what we're trying to do now is see if we can't do try these ideas out with libraries. Yeah. Things like Indigo. Yeah. And and maybe that's possible, but we're not changing the way that we're expressing our thoughts. We're just adding a bunch of attributes you, to a it. A lot of that I, to me know. sound you know, a lot of that to me comes down to what's going on in the in the business of software. What's going on in the business of, you know with Microsoft right now is uh, that you know they're they have .NET and, you know, SOA comes up from behind and who else is going to, you know, take the, take the, steal the thunder away? Have you seen anything else out there that, uh, I guess I'm trying to get a sense when you say we need a new language, what that language would look like if not. Well, some, well keep, keep in mind that I'm trying desperately to, to like to play on out. the side of the services group because yeah. I'm not convinced that we need them. Okay. I, I, I think as an example... Uh, most systems, most software is not created using object-oriented design. Most of us want to. Most of us are all excited because C-sharp and VBnet are purely object-oriented languages, and then we don't actually employ the features. You know, we, we use objects, we consume them, but very few people actually create a domain model using object-oriented behavioral analysis and so on and so forth and actually really do the work. You Instead, we go get a data set yeah. and, and we plop it behind a form somewhere and we write some code. And that's the way most software is written. And it's been that way since VB3 came out. Isn't that a function of the of the training, skill, and experience of the vast majority of the developers out there? Is that most of them, if you created this object, this new language to talk to services, what percentage of the people a year after it was released would use it? How many would you think would use it? A hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, a quarter million. Well, and no, we've got hundreds of thousands, if not, and we have millions and millions of developers out there at the lower ends of the tier, which is my customer base, that do simpler things. Everybody from the para developers, yeah. the doctors, lawyers, and the the dentists who are creating their own systems, right down to the receptionists and the janitors and the moms and dads, yeah. and add to that the smaller businesses, the one, two, five, ten, twenty man shops that are have to create simple applications to do relatively simple data management routines 
and those people service oriented architectures are yeah. not really that interesting they're worried about the support of the of the, the the simpler things how does ADO work how does databases work how do I deploy and how do I make money doing this yeah. how do I hire people and train people if they have to be so highly trained and specialized on, a, on an obscure language like C sharp which should they uh, not a word. This must be she shot. Uh, right? yeah. but, but you know, you have. It, it, so it's it's all about training. It's all about experience and the and the, the 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 pool of developers we have to, to draw on. I'm not so sure it's about training. I think it's about money. I, I honestly think it's about companies that are in business to make money. Whether they have to make those decisions, whether to whether first of all whether they have the people who have the capacity to learn how to build object models. Secondly, if they have the time and effort to put into the training. It's not that they don't want to be trained or they don't want to learn the stuff. There's more stuff to learn than they have time to learn. Well, every time so, they learn something, it seems to me that it's being obsoleted uh, five years later or six years later, you know, n years later, and not and they don't get to leverage that training long enough to be able to make much sense of it. Microsoft seems to keep you know churning the industry, and it's getting worse and worse as I can see it. Well, and that was. That was largely my point is that th you know, object orientation has been around for 30 years and we, you know, just in the last 10, it became what you'd consider mainstream. And even today, most software is not created using object oriented. It's just because you have the language doesn't mean you have the technique. Those are and, two different right. things. It takes the colleges and the universities and the schools and the, and the, and the self-taught stuff to be able well, to there's, do this. Well, there's a presupposition that procedural was bad and, and that we had to come up with something better. So we invented objects. And then objects were inaccessible, so we needed something better, so we created components. And then components turn out to be bad, and so now we're creating services. But I think it's premature, even if you go all the way back to objects, it's premature to say that they didn't work since none... Yeah, along the way, we built a whole lot of software. Never actually used them. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly. I don't know. That's a kind of a cynical attitude, I think. Uh, to me, it just is, seems like evolution, you know, software evolution. I think it's difficult if you're the actual person who spends the time and the money to learn something. And if you haven't learned anything fundamental enough that applies to the next level of evolution, then what were you studying? You know what I mean? So uh, for me, somebody who learns procedural programming moves to object-oriented programming. They, you know, they, they're still essentially calling code that they wrote in procedures, so they leverage their code skills. The object-oriented programmer learns components. They leverage all the stuff that they currently know. And when you, when you talk about services, it doesn't mean that you throw objects away, that you say, this is bad, this is good. You, know, you move on and you incorporate it into what you're currently doing. So I, I don't know as if anybody says components are bad, services are good. I think if, if, if you take that attitude, you missed it. <laughs> No, I, I would agree right. with you. <laughs> After all of that resounding applause. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, yeah, I think I want to clap, but I'm not sure, man. <laughs> no, no, I, I agree, and I think this is the thing. Service orientation, as it's being practiced right now, is procedural programming. Yeah. So we've literally come full circle. And, and the best possible design tool that you can use to design a system that's composed of services is a flowchart. Mm -hmm. There is no better tool. Of course, none of us would deign to use flowcharts, so we use UML activity diagrams. <laughs> well, maybe Bill would... Uh, sorry. I still have that green template that I used yeah. back in the 70s. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. But, but I do think you're right. Paper, it's, yeah. it's, it's the right tool for the yeah, right and, job. But you're not going to be able to write services without first, you know, if you have a, uh, you know, you should be able to know how to, to build objects because that's what services are built out of, isn't it? Not really, no. Nope. In fact, I would directly disagree with that. So you, you can't leverage your OOP skills when you're write at running SOA software systems? You can leverage any object-oriented programming or design skills inside the service because, after all, that's code. Right. Right. But the service interface is a method. It's a okay. procedure call. And so there's two... Does that mean you shouldn't have learned objects? There's two important perspectives when you're dealing or talking about services. There's the mm -hmm. perspective from inside the service, yeah. which is relatively conventional programming. Could yeah. be procedural, linear, you know, object-oriented. And then there's the view... The, which doesn't really exist in most companies today, but, but theoretically will, from outside, where I'm actually trying to orchestrate or combine a lot of different services together. Yeah. Well, at that level, it's purely procedural because yeah. a service is an atomic method. It, it's, it's a procedure. Right. Same, you know, and, and at that point, your, your OOP skills are meaningless. because. But those procedures you know, the, are, are pretty much going to be calling into business objects with logic that already exists, right? Well, you would in think some component so. format. You would think so, but having done a few of these things, I got to say that that probably eighty percent of the services that that get written are just retrieving and storing data. So we're back to code and, behind buttons. Well, basically. you know, if so, so, so you justify to me because after, like I said, having yeah. done this a few times, writing all of the code to implement a bunch of objects just to take some data and write it into the database when the data table would do it all for me in like two or three lines yeah that's really hard to justify okay but if you but if there's but if you're putting data into the database and there are val validation rules that apply you have those rules already in some sort of business object interface right if if you do then yes do, then that's great and you're finding that that's not the case most of the time that we're just well, writing data in data out kind of stuff the, see the one. trick with services is that they're autonomous and so you can't as in cannot reuse code from one service to the next mm. or between the client and the service they're specialized well they have to be by their very definition because they're loosely coupled yeah and so when you talk about a pre-existing component that has my business rules where would it pre-exist from mm -hmm. uh, it, it exists purely for my service and if I'm pretending to somehow reuse that code across services or between my client and the service, I'm already doomed. Yeah. I mean, at that point, you're no longer doing SOA at all. Give up, go home. You know, it's, that's pointless. Well, expand on that a little bit. Why? Because services uh, services are described as autonomous. And if you look up yeah. the word autonomous, you'll find that it means self-governing or essentially independent. Contextless. Maybe contextless, no. maybe. So, uh, so no... you wouldn't find that in a dictionary. Yeah, but but <laughs> you and I are, are potentially examples of services, and that that we're autonomous. We choose what we're going to say, how we're going to say it, where we're going to go, and yeah. we're independent of each independent. other in, in how we do that. Right. And the fact that we might share some commonalities doesn't actually mean that we share. You know, we're not truly sharing anything. Okay. And if you put it in a, in a business context. You know, my client application might validate some of the data as the user enters it, thus giving the user a rich interactive experience. Yeah. But the service that I then send the data to has to revalidate it. It has to yeah. because I'm not the only consumer. Right. By definition, services can be consumed by, by many different 
people many different bits of software. And we have to assume that one of them is going to make a mistake. So the service has to revalidate everything. And so you end up with duplication of logic. And then, of course, our natural in impulse is, is to say, well, ooh, maybe I can create a DLL and use it in both places. Yeah. Which is exactly why we started down the service road in the first place was to avoid that complexity. Interesting. But either way, I mean, this, this service orientation is very much a design policy, not necessarily an implementation methodology. You, you can write it in anything you want. You can code it up or not. In the end, if you're providing the interfaces and the autonomy the way that it's expected, you're building SOA. Yeah, I would agree with that. Then I would suggest that there are ways that SOA is going to fall flat on its face and ways that it will work. All right, but so that's let's a hear different that. thing. Let, let's hear that. I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, don't how you want to hear Bill? SQL, CLR. Let me ask Bill. Bill, do you anticipate writing service oriented architecture with VB6? Yes. In VB6, why not? It creates DLLs, com based DLLs. You could do that. So, toolkit. Yeah. Yeah. You got everything you need. You got everything I need. Why not? All right. Do I anticipate writing that? All right, everybody, go home. When the conference is over, no more. I want to ask do you anticipate doing that in QBasic 4.5? QBasic 4.5? I have written some code in QBasic 4.5. If I could find a license someplace. Yes. I don't have a lot of DOS customers anymore. I have some CPM customers. It's a little tricky trying to you know deal with sockets in in QBasic 4.5 I've found but you, you know what I do is I point it. a webcam yeah. I can at do it screen, <laughs> convert <laughs> strings to binary and just kind of squirt it out that yeah. way you know <laughs> get off my case well <laughs> <laughs> Forms development should definitely check out Telerik RAD RAD Control Suite, the UI essentials for rapid ASP.NET development. Online at www.telerik.com, T E L E R I K.com. They're a new sponsor, and uh, we've taken their tools for a test drive here, and we like what we see. This indispensable collection of components cover the major aspects of most web applications. From the CMS backbone and the WYSIWYG editor to navigation, content rotation, and charting. Telerik has just released version Q1 2005 of the RAD control suite, which features new major versions of their tree view, panel bar, and charting components. The company has been prominent for frequent releases, so you can expect something new every month. RAD Controls is not merely a collection of ordinary controls, but rather a value set of products, many of which are market leaders in their respective categories. They've received a number of industry awards and recognitions. Moreover, as of June 2004, a modified version of their flagship control, the HTML Content Editor called RAD Editor, 
has been made available by Microsoft as a replacement of the default HTML placeholder in Microsoft Content Management Server 2002. All the individual controls can also be purchased separately. If you only need navigation components, for example, you can opt in for the subset called RAD Navigation Suite. A subscription option is also available, which entitles you to new products and free updates for one year. So you should definitely check them out. Telerik RAD Control Suite Q1 2005 for ASP.NET at com. What, uh, I just came back from the authors' conference. If you want to switch subjects, and uh, Microsoft showed us a number of new things that are coming on. A number from under NDA, they're not really ready to talk about. There's, but there are several things that that we need to, to be made aware of, and we're seeing. Um, so, so that's wait, wait, that, that that's mean. What? Here we are in front of a bunch of people, and oh, I just got back from a conference where I heard all sorts of stuff that I can't, I can't share with you. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. I'm, Terribly sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, it. I actually was told to shut up during this conference too. Um, probably like for good reason. But I kept asking questions. I kept asking tough questions until somebody next to me said, "Don't ask any more questions." But it's uh, what I was. The point I was trying to make is that Microsoft has um, put a a lot more. Expe- money and uh, personnel and uh, emphasis on SQL Express. And I think um, we've seen an awful lot of talks here on Yukon and the very sexy features of Yukon. And how many people expect to see um, a lot of their companies, just your, your companies, switch immediately to Yukon and start using it the day it ships? We got five hands out of 200. Uh, I'm exaggerating everything. Yeah, maybe five hands out of 15. I think that's about right. How many people are going to be implementing, have already implemented MSDE and using MSDE in their sites? We have about the same. Same guys, actually. Same guys, actually. (laughs) So I think, how many people use JET, access JET databases? They're afraid to raise their hands. They're afraid to raise their hands, right? There are some out there, too. Bill's going to kick your ass now. But we've got... uh, The radio listeners can't see you. Yes. (laughs) But we have a number of people, uh, companies, and in my neighborhood, I support a, a man who works at, at uh, one of the big hospitals there in town, and he has 17,000 JET databases in his organization. Oh. Oh. 17,000. And they're not HIPAA compliant. So they have, they have the federal government talking to them. SQL Express can move them toward that compliance. It won't do it for them automatically, but it'll help. Uh, SQL Express lets them replace those desktop databases. The question is, is that overkill? And I think it probably is. So we need to look at other technologies that will give them someplace halfway in between. Yeah, having 17,000 databases is overkill, too. Well, you, yeah. you realize those databases are not run by the IT shop. They're yeah. run by the doctors and the, and the receptionists and the janitors and the people that happen to work in the organization. I know. Tack a little SOA interface on them, and now you got something. Right? Well, <laughs> what it doesn't also doesn't count is the even larger number of the most popular database platform in the world. Which Excel. is Excel. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Next and the, these down. people get on the phone. Say, Hi, yeah, okay, no, no, it won't go past sixty-five thousand rows. 
Yeah, it's one of those numbers. Yeah, um, and it's <laughs> they don't know how to expand it. <laughs> so they're and their IT people are trying to get a hold of the IT. This they're trying to get a hold of the data and manage this data and try to keep the federal government off their back. So it's a it's a big problem, and that's why I said Jet is basically a virus um, <laughs> that can spread from system to system around the company. And it's the, because it requires periodic maintenance, you have to compress it after a while. Um, you have to uh, you get everybody off of it. If it's multi-user, Lord help you. You have to get everybody off it to back it up. And these kinds of administrative things that it doesn't do naturally. That SQL Express is going to deal with these issues. Question, are you going to have other issues? And in the past, MSDE, for example, was a great step forward. And I think they did a lot of good work there. But uh, And I know one of the companies here in town, very large company that uh, it's kind of a Mickey Mouse company. Um, <laughs> uses, uh, oh, man. uses MSDE as their point of sale systems. So they have MSDs at the cash registers in, oh. behind the scenes, and they use a standard edition in the, in the store. They're replicating and then replicating to an enterprise edition in, in central office. It's a great system. And they said they've had a lot of luck with it. They're looking forward to SQL Express because it gives them all of the power of SQL Server 2000 core engine which is uh, an important. There's a lot of cool things that can do. You there. said that SQL Express might be overkill. It might be overkill. Now, why would it? For well, what for example, the, the Jet's footprint is fairly small. Uh, jet auto starts. You don't have, well, there's no starting Jet. Um, and the amount of energy that Jet takes from the system while it's not running is someplace between zero and none. Uh, SQL Server, on the other hand, is sitting there idling. It's it's you have a, it's not a Chevy V8 sitting there idling in the front yard. It's a Windows service, though, right? But so it's it cannot start. Yeah, but well, the but I, I thought that SQL Express, for instance, auto started when you um, when you go to open a file. Yeah, but and then still, when you close the file, then it goes back into yeah, a large. You don't, yes, state. there's an element of that, and they're still working out the details of that. But there's also some CPU overhead that's still going on. So they have to upgrade and, from Windows 95, is what you're saying. They, yeah, well, we're going to recommend that they use VPCs running Windows 95 VPCs, oh, good. or a CPM VPC, which is actually faster. Even better. Uh, <laughs> to run these, so so there are so, See, there and, are. Some, and, and here's where SOA really comes in. <laughs> Because you can run the client in Windows 95 and VB6 yeah. and, and then have it call back into the host OS. Right. Which is running XP. So we could run it quick basic programs. There you go. Call Jeff Maciola. He'll write the code for you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Rocky, uh, tell us about your, you know, we've had you on the show twice before. And we never really got into the heart of what your uh, framework does. And is and the kinds of things that we can look forward to in that. that so tell us true. about CSLA.net. It's an object-oriented framework. And in fact, it's geared toward the uh, basically trying to make it easier for people who do want to create object-oriented clients or services or middle-tier components, whatever, um, make it easier for them to create uh, business objects and work with them. So what is the what is the sub the set of features that you get out of the box if you even if you don't understand what your framework does underneath, what are some of the features you get by inheriting from your base classes? Well, I'll answer that, but first okay. I think it's important. I, over half the book is geared toward the creation of the framework itself and, yeah. and how and why, right? And and the intent is, is as much to make it a learning vehicle 
as as it is to make it something that you might use out of the box. And and a lot of people alter it and and customize it to suit their needs, which is good. That's kind of the point. Right. But my goal was to address a set of of problems that I think you will face um, when you go down the road of using objects. And, for instance, you'll need to somehow connect those objects up to your user interface. And you might choose to use data binding because that's pretty cool and it is getting a lot cooler in Visual Studio 2005. And in order to support data binding, there's a set of interfaces and events and and, things that you have to implement. And it's not pretty either, i got to tell you. It's not pretty. I I found out the hard way by trying to bind custom collections to list boxes that it just doesn't work without yeah. without some code yeah. and uh, you know well, and one of, look, one of the yeah. core one of the core tenets of, of object oriented programming is that your business class should basically contain only business code yeah and so if you start looking at your business class and it's 10% um, you know business code and 90% data binding and uh, you know data access and all these other things then uh, that's a problem mm-hmm. big problem at that point and and so really that was my goal was to make it as much as possible so that, that you wouldn't have to write all that ugly code. Right. Um, and instead it's in the framework. So it does data binding. It helps you track your whether business rules are broken at any point in time. Framework's free with the book, by the way, I ought to mention. That is true. Yeah. Yep, and go to my website and download it. And uh, it, it helps you organize your data access code. Right. Although it's not an object relational mapper. I think right. that's a, potentially even a fool's errand, but... Um, to, to create those. Is that a Ted Neward line? Object relational mapping is the Vietnam of software development. <laughs> that, that's a Ted Neward, yes. Yeah, that's a Ted Neward. Wow. You no. know, I, I've got I've to cut in here. It looks like uh, Russ is going around trying to get people to uh, ask questions, and, you know, not a lot of people are raising their hands. And I wonder if that has anything to do with a really warm response the first question asked got, you know, the... the <laughs> I'm uh, terrible. Go away, Sorry. leave me alone, I hate you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But I, I did I did take a look through uh, the stuff that you have in there, and there's some real I gotta say some really nice stuff, and oh, thank uh, you. yeah, I particularly like your multiple levels of undo in your business objects, and and how you implemented that was not with what I thought it would be, which was serialization, and and I've seen people make this mistake when talking about serialization as being able to restore the state of an object, but it doesn't. It, do, it creates a new object when you deserialize an object, but that doesn't replace the current object that you have all these references to, and so your references break. Yes, that's and right. And so what you do is you use uh, reflection to actually get a snapshot of all the property values, and then you reset those property values on the same instance that all the other references are set to, and I thought that was brilliant. Well, thank you. Not everyone shares that sentiment, though. I, I get occasional emails saying, reflection? How could you use reflection? Reflection is slow. Reflection is evil. And, and yeah, to some degree, that's, well, empirically it's true. Reflection is probably 600 times slower than a normal method call. But you know, when we're talking about setting and retrieving a few hundred properties... It, it actually, breaking references. On, on a smart client. Yeah. Right? So, so you, you have the CPU. It's, it's yours. Right. It really doesn't matter. Yeah. And if you're on a web server, the concept of undoing an object in a web application almost never makes yeah, sense because right. users, when they're done, they just kind of you know go away. They don't click cancel. Right. Yeah. That was good stuff. And uh, some the other feature, of course, is the data binding, 
which is interesting in Visual Basic because you wrote the book for VB programmers, right? Originally, yep. originally, yeah. And and there's something that you had to do in C sharp with having to do with a delegate for uh, for the. Well, you tell the story. Well, yeah. So it, it turns out, and this is actually not a language specific issue per se. Right. That uh, when you declare an event in a class, and then say a Windows form starts handling that event, what really happens behind the scenes is that your object instance gets a reference to the form. You know, you don't do this. It's it's right. automatic. It's done through the plumbing of the delegate. Yeah. But but nonetheless. What you don't know is that your object now references the form. And when you go to use the binary formatter to serialize your object, the binary formatter goes through and, and tries to take all of your data and put it into the byte stream. Yep. And if it finds an object reference, it tries to serialize the target object. And so, of course, it finds this reference that you didn't know you had to the form, and forms are not serializable, and so it blows up. Yeah. Now, the answer to this is that you have to mark the event as being non-serialized. Well, except that's not really the answer either, as it turns out, because what you really want to do is mark the delegate that you never see or create as being non-serialized. Yes. And so VB doesn't today have an answer for that, although it will in 2005. Yeah. And C Sharp has two answers. And, and I got to say that I mean, I spent months. I talked to people on the, the C-sharp team, on the VB team. I talked to people you know, on the, that owned the serializer, that owned remoting. I mean, I, you know, it took me about three months before I finally ran across somebody. I, I think it might have been Chris Sells who said, oh, oh, there's a hack in C-sharp to do this called the field target. So you can, in your attribute, put the word field colon, and then non-serialized, you put that on an event and it tells the compiler to mark the delegate behind the scenes. It's non-serializable. It's non-serializable. And so this is what I did in the book. This, this forced me to have a little bit of C-sharp code at the very base of the framework. Um, well, what I found out more recently is that C-sharp all along had a better answer. But in all of the, you know, probably two dozen people I talked to, nobody, you know, at the time knew this. So you've, you've, you think about this, right? Because I was talking to either Microsoft people or, or other authors, I mean, recognized experts. But at the time, C Sharp was so new that this idea never clicked. And that is that you can declare an event using a block structure. So you manually declare the delegate. And you manually handle the adding and removing of references to the event, and then you don't add a reference. What's that? But so now you don't have you don't have to have the reference, or you now you well, can mark so it now manually. now that you are declaring the delegate, you can mark it as non-serialized non normally, right? And this is the feature that VB is getting in 2005 as the block structure. Um, in fact, it, it's kind of one-upping C sharp in that. Um, VB not only lets you handle the addition or the uh, reference and dereferencing of, a, of an event, but you also get a block structure to handle when it gets raised. And so you can do some interesting things there, which I think you can do in C Sharp as well, but it's not as, you know, it's not within the block structure. It's you know, just a little trivial change. Well, anyway, I thought it was, uh, uh, you know, just one more of those brilliant nuggets in that book. And, and what's, what is the name of that book for people who don't know? Well, there's the uh, expert one-on-one -on -one Visual Basic .NET business objects, and then there's expert C Sharp business objects. Okay, and they're both A Press books, or they are now both A Press yeah, books. Great. 
And uh, also you can check them out online at lotka.net, right? L-H-O-T-K-A dot net? That's right. All right. I'm a big fan if you haven't guessed. But anyway, this question uh, comes from the audience here. Eddie Riccio. Eddie, where are you? Eddie, how you doing, man? And I want to say he's a longtime listener and uh, wants me to give a shout-out to the Orlando.net user group who's meeting tonight. Go ahead. Yeah, you can whoop it up. Yeah. Who's, uh, they're meeting tonight with the VB.net team at New Horizons in Winter Park, and they wanted to give me a shout-out, and there you go. Eddie says, with all the emphasis on the factory method for data access, when and why should you have logic in the SQL Server CLR? And I'll just open that for either of you. Who wants to take that on? Um, putting logic in the SQL CLR makes sense when you have a lot of math, when you have a lot of CPU computation, when you're, when you're pegging the CPU. Um, because TSQL really doesn't know how to handle it. There's, what you're doing, you're extending this, the, the TSQL language. Uh, if you're just doing data retrieval, you're doing joins, you're pulling back data, leave it there. Don't go out to CLR to do it. Uh, I've got a session here, and we'll show you a couple of graphs and where we are, in fact, doing some CLR work, and it's clearly slowly slower to do it in, in the CLR. Uh, and this is the problem that I've witnessed uh, a number of times in, once here at the event, and at other conferences where someone gets up and says the CLR is the greatest thing since sliced bread. It is, but when coupled with SQL CLR, it's, there are a, several very interesting scenarios where it makes sense, but those are often few and far between. So would it be, isn't, yeah, isn't the, um, like the official terminology something like um, set-based operations are better in TSQL and non-set-based whatever that might looping, be. Looping, um, basically. Yeah, things like looping or, or math right. or other things like that are, are yeah. better in the so CLR. If you're, we've heard a number of very exciting um, implementations of this already using GPS navigation. For example, you have a delivery system, a delivery company that wants to find out what's the best route we should take given the following addresses and plot out a, a map uh, based on database lookups and math. And those, in fact, can be done through a regular database query. And a great use for the CLR um, I have an example that uses uh, encryption uh, and calling into the Windows APIs that really can't be done from uh, TSQL. So there are things that make sense. Uh, one of the things that I'm going to try here next week when I get home is uh, calling a perf counter from the CLR. Mm. In other words, you have a, a transact SQL, and I want to just pick up yeah. what's the current CPU load, or what's the garbage collector doing right now. You got all those perf counters out there, but you can't get it from TSQL. A quick function can come and go back. And uh, while it's probably not a good idea for production code, it is good for testing. And there's a number of ways we can kind of leverage that, getting back to the engine. Good. Uh, this came from Mark in the audience. What uh, what changes are going to break code? Uh, this thing, uh, uh, break code in ADO two O. Um, I've been experimenting quite a bit with ADO two O for some reason at this point. Um, uh, Peter Blackburn and I are writing a new book on UConn. and Peter uh, and I had an argument about what was how a uh, not finding a database would manifest itself. As a matter of fact, I already I was writing a chapter on how SQL Server works, and the example that I printed out was using the October CTP. And what happens is if you have, you ask for database FRED, the ADO, the interfaces go out and they ping for database FRED. Can you see FRED based on this IP or whatever on the net? 
And what would come back traditionally is server not found. I think it's error 22. <laughs> um, that's not what comes back anymore. In the February CTP, you get a timeout, error minus two. Isn't that special? Mm -hmm. um, I asked uh, Pablo Castro, who's my contact in the dev team, and he says, yeah, we know. It's because you asked for it. I remember about three years ago when we asked to have the errors be just more specific about what happened. Uh, the original builds of .NET, they didn't even have error occurred. They just had happens uh, in the error string. <laughs> <laughs> And so they substituted error, error occurred, which was not specifically useful. And so they said they wanted to remove all the error occurred stuff to happen. The problem is that when the error occurs, it occurs five layers down. So the reason it's a timeout is that when the net bios or that network layer shouted out on the net and says, are you there? They got no answer. So they assumed and they, they timed out waiting for it. So they passed, they bubbled that up. What they're hoping to do after they break every piece of ADO code in the world um, <laughs> is to provide a more layers, levels of, of error. So they're going to say timeout occurred, yes, we were looking for a SQL server, and the name of the SQL server was this. So it's going to give you more information, but all of your existing error handlers are going to have to be revisited, the ADO.net ones at least. Well, we, had, we had this problem back in the early ODBC days where you, you'd only get the last error in a stack. I had a customer call me up and say, I want you to get that ODBC stuff off all my machines because all it does is raise errors. Mm -hmm. yeah, it is just, the error upon the error upon the error, and you, you basically have to analyze the stack in your exception handlers to figure out what really happened. What was the real error that started all yeah, this? Yeah. Well, in the DB Live days, we had uh, when you open a connection and you get a named pipe closed unexpectedly. You ought to see what that translates to in French. But it means that um, SQL Server accepted the connection, tried to create an agent. The agent said there's no more, no more connections available, and it closed the pipe. So we got a named pipe closed unexpectedly. Well, ah, swell. That's, thanks that's, for telling me. Thanks for telling me, yeah. <laughs> so it's um, this high-resolution error handlers. It's it's a dual-edged sword. It's The extra information is good. The question is, how are we going to differentiate these errors? Are you going to use the numbers? Are you going to test on the string? Uh, the best thing to do is just show these to the users. Uh, so the <laughs> <laughs> and All right, that's a joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, it's a number of very large companies don't think so. Uh, I've went. I've got a, a whole series of screenshots I've been collecting. Uh, this is one of my rogues gallery of like the Arco site. I went out there and tried to oh. enter a string and uh, a comment that says you really need to do so and so. And I said you don't do so and so. So I had an embedded apostrophe in the string. It got a jet error syntax thing. It was Ooh, lovely. Jet. <laughs> yes. Oh. And yeah. <laughs> so the, apparently a number of large companies feel that the users are the best people to debug these things. And it yeah. turns out that I was. And it, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I offered them a consulting contract to solve this. I said it was only taking me a couple hours to solve this, uh, this problem. By Good. Oh, we, I've got a question here from uh, Roger Hartford. Um, which is really, a, this one will go to either one of you because it's a very broad uh, concept talking about um, what he says is, uh, where do you feel Microsoft should draw the line between providing time-saving features for boilerplate functions such as two-way data binding and creating full-fledged applications 
such as the uh, membership uh, system that's being considered. And I think that really gets into stuff like enterprise blocks and so forth, all these different bits of code that Microsoft's been building. And uh, I, I wonder what your opinion is on, uh, on where those things are at and what makes the most sense for Microsoft to build for us. Okay, I'm not a real fan of the application blocks. Uh, I've looked at the code behind the scenes, and um, they use OSFA code. One size fits all. You know, it's, right. it's it's a generic interface, and some customers find this is a great starting point. However, back to training again. When someone comes into their shop, they not only have to train them on ADO.net or the data access. I'm just talking about the data access application block. They have to train them. Okay, we don't use ADO.net here. We use the application block. So you have, you may already know this, but you're going to have to use the application block instead. Um, and you're going to have to be held back by its limitations, but we're going to settle for that. Um, other customers say, we tried it. We found that it was too generic. We had some specific needs that we wanted to handle these things differently. Uh, for example, we don't believe in data readers at all. Uh, I'm not a data reader fan either. Uh, why have 55 lines of code that can be replaced with one and it's 5, 10, 15% slower? And since we're only fetching 75 rows, what difference does it make? Mm. You know, it's four milliseconds. Yeah. And the, the performance benefit is not how fast you ask the question, but the question that you ask. If you're asking a dumb question, it's still going to take, no matter how fast you ask it, it's, it's still going to take five minutes. Better. It's not going to be any better. So there are, it's, a, it's a productivity thing. In, when you bring people into your organization, how is expensive is it to support this code? One line versus lots of lines or having to support the application block. Now, I've heard the exception handler block is also interesting. People that don't have robust exception handlers may find the exception handler block interesting. At least a learning tool that they can take and oh, I see what they're doing. I can clone that and do it myself and they have my own stuff added to that too. That's got to be the toughest part about providing blocks of code like that is actually you know, really presenting best case code. You would expect nothing less and it's really tough to write code that clean. It is. It is hard. And again, Microsoft has, has tries to be you know, one, all things for all people. Um, and they, they really did a pretty good job, but it is, uh, I'm just not a fan of that approach. So some of the developers that I talk to says, yes, we tried them, but, uh, we stepped back and, and learned from that, how they were doing, approaching the problem and did it our own way. So I would actually answer the question a little bit differently in that I would actually rephrase the question to suggest that there are three things going on here. Microsoft creates tools such as the IDE and the Visual Basic compiler and, and so forth. And then they provide essentially free giveaway unsupported software like the application blocks. And then they provide um, things that are part of products but are, are really quite sophisticated libraries, things like Commerce Server, um, things like SharePoint. Uh, and, and, and now starting for the first time really uh, inside of our development products, things like the membership functionality in ASP.NET 2.0. And Microsoft's track record at the tool level, I, I would submit, is really nice. I mean, they've done, a, I, I think, an outstanding job with Visual Basic and, and with Access and C++. And I mean, all, all, all these tools, yeah. I mean, they've done a wonderful job over many, many years. You're absolutely right. That, mm -hmm. They've done a great job there. And then when we start looking at the Patterns and Practices group and the blocks, you know, they've only got, what, a three-year history and some people think they're over 
engineered and some people really like them and mm-hmm. but but they're not supported if you use them you assume ownership and as long as you recognize when you go download you know the new enterprise library you now own that code that is your code not microsoft's and as long as everybody goes into that with their eyes open i think that's all wonderful too right you learn from it use it whatever where i get really nervous is these things like the membership services or, or in, in particular, do are, are you going to base your enterprise security around this, given Microsoft's general track record of support or lack thereof for things like site server, commerce server? Were they the same product once? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, as, as, I mean, there's usually no migration path as you move from version to version on these things. Um, well, once yeah, again, yeah, you, you own the code. You get involved well, in that. Except you don't own the code because you don't own the, the code, code for site server. You're not going to own the code for the membership services subsystem. I thought they're going to move that to open source. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. It, it, All right. So, so this is why I divided into three groups because I, I think in the first two groups, Microsoft is doing wonderful things, right, as long as you know what they're doing. But in this third group, I, I, I get very nervous. And, of course, then salespeople jump all over me because they say, well, I, I'm somewhat leery about, say, SharePoint Portal, which is one of the hotter products right now. And everybody's, yay, you know, wonderful Portal stuff. I, I, we now know that SharePoint, the next version, is going to use um, ASP.NET 2.0's technology. And it's not yet clear whether there's going to be any sort of automated upgrade path. Yeah. Historically, in this situation, there has not been. Especially early, with a really early, early version products, there's often these big jumps in design, and there's no easy way to get from one to the next. Well, so, you know, it just makes me nervous. Well, Microsoft also has a fourth division, if you will. It's product support and paid product support. So if people want support on this stuff, they can always call up and pay 260 an, an incident to get it supported or get a support contract, a long-term support contract for the corporation. So the... Are they uh, incentivized? Is that a good word? Incentivized. Incentivized. Yeah. Or do they have an incentive to make the code totally bug-free? No, if they if they pass a certain number of bugs over to PSS, when they call this and say, you, you'll be a hero and you fix it for them, kind of, th- I don't know, maybe I'm just... That's being, not cynical at all, is that's it? That's not no, cynical no, at all. Not at all. Well, uh, I have a question, unless any one of you has a final point to make. Uh, we have two more questions. Okay. All right, well, I have a question from Josh Hat- uh, Headley, from High Output Software, who says, as a consultant, what can we do to convince customers to spend the extra money and time to create a nice object-oriented architecture when Microsoft always hypes up, do more with less, and makes it so easy to data bind to controls directly? Well, I think part of the answer comes in 2005, um, where data binding against objects is at a peer level with data binding against a data set or a data table where you can drag a data table onto a form and it will do all the data binding for you. Or you can drag your customer class onto the form and it will do all the data binding for you, which is a tremendous step forward in in terms of just sheer productivity. And so if you take that RAD level productivity, which is now at a peer level, and then start focusing on what's the long-term maintenance costs of your system, if you organize your code into a set of domain objects uh, versus lumping your code behind click buttons in the UI or, or whatever you might have traditionally done, 
And I think you can make a very compelling argument that the object-oriented design, and we're not talking, at least I'm not talking object-oriented programming necessarily. Yeah. I mean, that's important, but I'm specifically talking about employing object-oriented design. In fact, if I can plug a book here, um, there's a book called Object Thinking by a guy named David West that I think is a, a particularly good book if you are interested in doing serious object-oriented design. And, uh, you know, he, he covers some really good thought-provoking ideas around how you should be designing your objects to, to really reduce the cost. Rocky, can I ask you a question? The a number of the developers come to me and they're struggling with whether or not they ought to strongly type data sets through drag-and-drop. In other words, once they create the drag-and-drop XSL infrastructure behind the scenes and then have the code generated for them, uh, that seems to work fine, but when the schema changes, they have to start over. Now, in, in 2005, we have uh, partial classes that helps this situation, but they're still struggling with, gee, I went to all that trouble to do this, and I'm going to have to do it all over again and break code when the schema changes. It's, it's... Well, there, there's a couple answers. The partial class thing doesn't really address that particular well, do issue. Or you, when you modify but... the class ex post facto. <clears throat> right. And some of these things are just non-trivial because when you think, you know, people are always trying to isolate different layers of their software mm -hmm. and they say, because if I change the database, I don't want to have to change the UI. And I'm like, well, why did you change the database? Oh, to add a field. And you don't want to show it in the UI? Well, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, like, I you know, I mean, in, in a normal application, the, the layers are tightly linked to each other, coupled to each other just by their very nature. So they should have done a select star. Well, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, no, that, I'm not suggesting everything, <laughs> but I would not suggest that. Um, <laughs> but it's recognition. But, but, but if you're going to make a change like that, it's going to impact all layers anyway. Well, it's likely to. Now, if it doesn't, if for some reason I, I change my database and I change my data table, but I don't want to change the UI. So for some reason, I'm getting this field that I'm going to ignore, uh, which I'm sure there's some valid reason for. Um, you can actually do that in 2005 because there's a new construct called a data connector, maybe. They keep changing the name, and by the time it shows up, it probably won't be called a data Just connector. I'll Google it real quick and see what the name is right now. But today, I think it's called a data connector, and it actually is an, a level of indirection between the UI itself. So, so all of your controls in the UI bind to the data connector, and the connector binds to your data source. And so the schema, the layout of the data source can expand. It can't actually contract, but it can expand. It can have extra stuff added to it over time. And the UI will never know or care because its data connector was programmed at, at the original schema. The other side effect that I think is really cool is it means that you can, as long as it's polymorphic, as long as your data set exposes exactly the same set of um, properties or columns, you can switch between business objects and data tables and different data tables as long as they've got that set of, of required properties or, or columns. You can put anything underneath there. I, so. I tend to recommend looking at code generators by that point because I think what you're doing when you're dragging a table and creating a data adapter in a, in a you know, strongly typed data set is you're working with a code generator. And the problem with that is you don't have control over the code that gets generated with that little operation there. You don't have access to the template. So, so I'm telling people, look, if this is really the way you want to work, you know, driving everything from your database, you should look at some sort of uh, code generation tool 
like declare it or something like that yeah, because where you can actually yeah where you can and kathleen dollar did it, you know, yeah it was gonna say it'd be really nice that. if somebody would write a book on code generation it would be <laughs> <laughs> she just has happens to be here in the audience uh and Giggling. we still want to find out how you broke your arm by the way uh she fell down. Okay, that's all she's yes, saying. She's always saying we've already discussed. But that's we, what I tell people. You know, look, if this is what you're going for, why don't you write the code that it generates and then press the button when you change the data and then you're, you're all happy. Well, and I think so. even from the product team even inside of Microsoft, we're starting, of course, that's different from the marketing group inside of Microsoft, right? So we will see where this goes. But the product <laughs> team is actually starting to make noises around the idea that, that strongly typed data sets and, and data sets in general are really geared toward what Bill was talking about earlier, just the real, the relatively trivial mm. um, data maintenance type applications. Yeah. And, and with the intent that if you're doing something more sophisticated, that you should, in fact, be using a true object-oriented approach. Right. And and I would agree with, with you that if you're going to go down a full-blown object-oriented approach, code generators are a wonderful time saver. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, we're just about out of time. So is there any last minute words of wisdom uh, you want to impart in our, on our audience? You took my notes. No, I'm, <laughs> I think I'm ready. Okay. How about, how about this? I like to ask, what, what, what's the coolest thing you've downloaded lately, Rocky? The coolest thing I've downloaded? Well, you, know, you, you guys like do this regular radio program and all this, right? Which yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. And, and personally, I'm a, a huge fan of radio plays, of radio dramas. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so the coolest thing I've downloaded is an open source um, tool called, uh, and I can't freaking remember the name of it, but uh, it's a audio editing tool. And that's open source. Would it be Audacity? Audacity. 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 Yeah, it's running right over here. <laughs> running right over there. Yeah, I used Audacity and, and, uh, to create the DVDs for my so book. Specifically because yeah. my, my yeah. sons and I are in the middle of creating a, a small radio drama. Neat. So ah. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Audacity.sourceforge.net, I believe is yeah, the and URL we, And that. we use it. Yeah. Yeah. It's and one of many audio editing programs we use, and it's it's... It's pretty good. It's one of the best free audio editors yeah, We ever. created uh, 12 gigabytes of... Um, of Camtasia videos for the book, Ooh. and we lost all but two and a half megabytes. Oh, two, two and a half gigabytes <laughs> about two days before production. Thank you very much. Hard disk crash Ooh. in, um, in uh, the UK. Peter apparently doesn't up. understand UPS. Yeah. Oh. His, his power is in a 400 year old house that oh, has. Man. Never mind. Well, what's the coolest thing you've downloaded? I've this? downloaded something called Fizz Traveler. There's now a Fizz Traveler 2. It goes on my smartphone, and it is probably the coolest thing around. It does everything you'd ever want to have a phone do as far as accessories. It has a, a multi-time uh, zone clock. It has currency conversions that it downloads off the web for free. Wow. It has... Um, uh, Weather, you can pick whatever cities you want to download the weather for wherever you're going. So if you're a traveler, it's a great link to pull this stuff up. And um, the, I think it was cheap. It was it was not expensive at all. And the people on the other end, I think it's a U.K. company, as a matter of fact, but they were very, very nice about the – I had a couple of problems with the, the authentication and so forth. Very nice and good good customer service. So oh, excellent. Viz Traveler, too. Well, listen, guys, I want to I want to thank you and I want to thank the audience. And on behalf of myself, Jeff and Richard, uh, thanks, Rocky and Bill, for coming on .NET Rocks. And we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Have a good week. Time on.